0: Welcome to Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. On this week's episode, we're talking to Tressie McMillan-Cottom, a sociologist whose research spans higher education, work, race, class, gender, and digital societies. You likely know Tressie from her podcast, Here to Slay. Which she co-hosts with Roxane Gay, or the way I know her, which is through her highly acclaimed book *Thick*, a collection of personal essays that capture her life through the lens of American culture and societal institutions. Tressie's work has had significant impact on our current discourse around race and gender, and in our conversation today, we talk about how those two things operate in our digital spaces. Think the internet, social media, but also think digital marketing, branding, consumerism all of the pieces that make our world go around. These spaces have become the new stage for police brutality, the Black Lives Matter movement, and white supremacy. And well before all of this, they housed the social and cultural constructs that brought us to this point. I started our conversation by asking Tressie, how our notions of race and racism play out in our worlds, both online and offline, and where those notions are headed. Listen closely to this conversation, because no matter who you are, it will reveal something to you about yourself and about your world that you didn't see before. There are
1: parts of the covert and overt patterns of racism that the internet, especially platforms, are really good at exploiting and uncovering that also operate in the quote-unquote real world, but they're just more difficult to see. And then the reverse is also true. There are forms of covert and overt racism that are easier to see in the real world. So maybe thinking about it like the architecture of the real world, the physical world, obscures and uncovers different forms differently than it does online. But there is really just one big pot of stew of stuff <laughs> that is happening person to person or what would we say interpersonally, groups have these forms of interaction. And then there's like the big pot of stew, which is the culture, economics, those big ones that aren't a place or a thing, but that are still really powerful ideas. So politics, economics, culture, consumption, that shape how race and racism play out in our everyday lives. And then race and racism shape those things. So I think it's about what is uncovered and the patterns of race and racism can reveal different forms of how those things work online, but I think it's all emerging from that same sort of ooze that, you know, of uh, stuff that creates culture and experience.
0: So what's an example of a platform that kind of brings this to the surface in a way that we wouldn't normally see?
1: I can think of like two examples, and I'm absolutely borrowing some work from one of my uh, recently graduated graduate students. So, a big shout out to uh, Tabitha Loker, who did a wonderful thesis about humor, irony, and racism on the streaming gaming platform Twitch. And we were able to think through how something about how Twitch is designed or the architecture of that platform shapes different kinds of racism and what we would call race talk or the way that we talk about race in everyday life, even when we ostensibly are not talking about race. So, for example, we know that when we say that, oh, we don't go to that side of town, we know what that means, right? (laughs) And we may not overtly say that that is about race, but it is a certain way of talking about race. And so one of the things that she finds on the Twitch platform is that because it privileges anonymity, as you pointed out, and because people are disembedded from their local context. So when you log into something that is a streaming platform, there's something about, you know, dropping into the stream of constant activity the way one does on these gaming platforms that I think cognitively separates you from your real world, And so there are things that you would say in that space because the consequences seem different, right? The people in the machine aren't these sort of fully fleshed out people to you, but the problem you have there is that you need to build instant culture, instant community. So when I log on to Twitch at 3 a.m. from, say, Indiana, I could drop into an ongoing stream of people from all across the world in different time zones And that's what's cool about it and what is attractive about the platform to me. But if I want to be a member of the community, I need to instantly be able to communicate with these people. We need to share a language. And here's where the real world part kicks in. The biggest ideas, the most global ideas that we share across time zones, across identity, across place are ideas about race. So one of the easiest ways for me to become a member of a community really quickly on something like a streaming gaming platform is to make a joke about racism or to make a racist joke. Because it works whether I am uh, in the UK, whether I'm in Indiana or whether I'm in Mexico. Right. And so that's a way to just really quickly shortcut the community building in a streaming platform. Another example is a platform that I use a lot, which is Twitter, where it's actually a little harder to do. So you see more covert forms of racism and more implicit forms, I think, of racism on those platforms, which is why I think there's been such a coordinated Conversation and pushback against trolling, against these coordinated misinformation campaigns that so often use race and racism as part of their attacks on people. Because on Twitter, we aren't dropping out of a stream and into an ongoing stream. You see sort of the same accounts over time. You develop a language that doesn't need to rely so heavily. On overt ideas of race and racism for you to be in a community. So when somebody drops in and suddenly starts, you know, uh, race bombing the conversation, it's a norm violation and people can feel a certain way about that. So it's the same behaviors, but something that would instantly build community on Twitch actually undermines community on Twitter, but they're both pulling from the same ideas, which are what are the acceptable ways to talk about race and racism in certain places?
0: Right. You know, and there are also visuals or memes that I think mm-hmm. you, you you kind of have to dig a little bit to understand that even though they get wildly popular, they are reinforcing racist beliefs. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking, it made me think of, do you remember that meme? I think it was last year where it's like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and they're in a picture together and it's like, A hundred and whatever billion dollars in one picture, and not a Gucci belt in sight, you know, not Uh, a flashy, uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You've talked about something along these lines in the past about consumption, luxury. Mm -hmm you know, wearing, displaying and how, how does a meme like this, if we had to decode Mm -hmm. this, what is it really telling us?
1: And decoding is the exact right word. So Stuart Hall is this famous cultural historian of race and racism. And he had this idea that the way that racism perpetuates itself in a contemporary society is through the way we can encode messages In our everyday discourse so that for you to get it's like getting the joke, right, which is Mm -hmm. exactly it. So a joke and a meme is a really good example of this because it only works if the people who are sending the meme and the people who are receiving the meme share the same understanding about the symbols in the meme. Right. So I could you could send that same thing about Bill Gates and a Gucci belt, um, you know, to uh, someone in Korea and they'd be like, I don't get the joke because consumption and status work very differently there. There's no there's no race attached to the idea of status symbols in other cultures in the U.S., race is encoded so deeply in our ideas about class and the right way to consume things that. For that mean to work, we both have to share the idea that, oh, poor people of color buy things wrong, right? They spend too much money on luxury consumer goods. And I have talked about the idea that the, the joke works if I think I am part of the group that consumes right. So the joke actually really falls apart if I go, hey, I actually absolutely understand why a poor person would spend money on a luxury item. Right? It could signal belonging in very critical ways to a group of people. It could be a way for you to get status in a world where there's very little of it to go around. And listen, status makes your life easier when I can walk into a room and people assume the best of me. I get different access to whatever the group controls, right? I can get a phone call sooner. I could get the clerk to respond to me in a different way. I could get a teacher to speak to me differently. So I can actually think of a really good reason why a poor person could have the Gucci belt. But if I can't think of that reason, then the meme is funny, right? Um, So yeah, memes tap into our shared understanding about race and also class and gender, I might add and sexuality and um, heteronormativity, if the joke lands, it has to be because I share your ideas about the symbols in that meme. And if it doesn't land, here's the wonderful thing about memes. We can always say, oh, well, they don't matter. They're so low. You know, there's such low hanging fruit, right? No one's hurt when we share a meme, but the ideas that make the meme work actually do hurt people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What was surprising to me about this one too is it was so widely shared. Mm -hmm. I wonder if half of those people realized that Mm -hmm. it was resonating with them because of the racist Mm -hmm. beliefs that they had adopted. Let's keep talking about visuals and images here. And Mm -hmm. I remember you, you, I think you wrote someplace that visuals can be hard for a sociologist because you have to break (laughs) them down.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they can. Um,
0: (laughs) But, you know, visuals have been a big part of the the Mm -hmm. social discussion right now, visuals of black men being killed by white police Mm -hmm. or black women being killed by white police or images of people who were murdered, but back when they were at their graduation or with their family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the thing about these images, you know, as we contemplate them is that you have an immediate emotional response. They're easy to share. They compel you to do something in the short term, Mm -hmm. but Is it shortcutting something? I mean, is Mm -hmm. it kind of allowing us to skip some sort of Mm -hmm. larger moral process? I
1: think so. So the thing about images, you know, when television was invented and became a widely available technology, you know, there was all this fear about whether or not, truly, whether or not human beings were capable of processing images in this way that it would sort of reprogram our relationship to reality. Now, that may have been overstated, but I think one of the things that we are really grappling with in the last few years is it may not have been as overstated as we'd like to believe. Images work because they do seem to have a direct path to our emotions in a way that text does not. You can escape into text, but you have to work at it. Right? You have to sit down with a book. You have to engage in the stories. You have to adopt the premise of the text. And so you have to sort of buy into it. And visual images shortcut the buy in. You are in that world, whether you elected to be there or not. Right? That's why they are so powerful. It can play on your emotions without you being consciously aware of the fact that that is happening. And this is what I think we lose in the process. And there is a lot of social science actually to this, that people develop greater capacity for empathy through reading than they do through visual images. And we think that might be because you have to be consciously engaged with what you are interacting with when you are reading the text, whereas images work on us in a passive way and therefore don't ask much of us. And so once the image stops, your empathy stops. So then what's the feedback loop? It sets up a set of incentives, kind of like the way Facebook you know, reaction uh, emojis do, which is you start to crave how many likes you get, right? On Facebook, which shaped us for Instagram, which made us ready for TikTok, where it's all about the audience feedback. That's why the in- internet runs so much so on images, because it does that. It sort of shapes our capacity for feedback but it also creates the desire for more feedback. So we become the mouse chasing the pellet, you know? And so we never stop to think about it because when, once the image is gone, the emotion ends. And so the risk of that is what has to happen in the case of police violence and the images of it, for example, is that for us to stay in a place of empathy, people have to keep being abused by the police. Oh. We need another image. We need another image. We need another image. We need for people to care. That's the catch to -to 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 what I think a lot of really brilliant activists um, have pointed out, the limits of the empathy of video images of police brutality. It's very narrow and doesn't develop the capacity for sustained change.
0: Yeah. We've spoken on this podcast before about how We're we're so limited in in terms of empathy anyways. Mm -hmm. We we have a hard time empathizing with the group, but we can empathize with the individual. You know, we can hear about causes for entire nations or displaced people, but it won't compel us as much as like an image of a little girl, let's say, who's Mm -hmm. starving Mm -hmm. someplace. Oh, yeah. And it brings up this other point, too. Tell me if you agree. I feel like sometimes when you see these images... The reaction for some people is to like distance themselves mm-hmm. from being part of that system. And it makes me think of the Karen meme that's mm-hmm. just going around everywhere. The idea that Karen can be so neatly packaged and she's mm-hmm. just this other, and we're not complicit. We didn't create mm-hmm. her. We're not a part of that. I'm not a
1: Karen. Yeah.
0: yeah. Exactly. It, it feels like by identifying her, by naming her, by putting parameters around her, by giving her a certain haircut and putting her in a grocery store, like it's so clear that she's not us, mm-hmm. but it actually has, it, it, it erodes our potential to really understand our role in all of this. Mm-hmm. I think.
1: So labeling the thing that is happening is a really powerful tool for resisting something that would oppress you. So what starts out as a subculture in this case um young Black online culture, I would say, creates this idea of Karen. But they didn't create Karen. They didn't create Karenism. They labeled it and they packaged it for their form of communication, which is online sharing and memification. The flip becomes when we start to focus on the signifier or the package or the idea of Karen and we stop critiquing what made Karen and and who is Karen. I think This would be powerful if white women's engagement with that meme, for example, should be not, I'm not a Karen, but to sit in instead the space of, wow, how am I like her? Right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the same haircut, but I've overreacted like that in an environment. Or I've also assumed the worst of someone in an interpersonal interaction. It wasn't the grocery store. It was the workplace or, you know, it wasn't a red lobster. It was at the bank, but to look for points of similarity that moves from a place of consuming the Karen meme to developing, yes, the capacity for being what we would call critically self-reflexive, which is to think about yourself, not in a narcissistic way, but to think about yourself as others experience you. Can you be reflective in that way? And it's an uncomfortable space. But to look at those memes that are about whiteness in particular, I think it's really important because it's the most unspoken of our race talk, right? The racial ideology that we're not supposed to label and speak about. But to think about how you're similar, not to distance yourself. Because here's the thing, Karens don't fall out of the sky. (laughs) They're not anomalies. They came from somewhere. And if In a culture that is as racially segregated as ours is, very few white people, for example, have non-white friends. We know this statistically. So if black people are experiencing Karens with the frequency that we can now document, then some white person somewhere knows a Karen. I mean, that's just statistically the probable case, right? So I will often say to people who immediately jump up and they go, oh God, no, that's not me. That would never be me. And I go, well, you must know someone like this, you've, you've, you must have seen this somewhere and the real space of moving from consuming what I would call the racist signifiers, which can make you feel good in a moment. Like, Ooh, I'm not her," Ooh, good for me. Right. And moving instead to a place of, "Mm, is this good for anybody for this kind of thing to exist? It's to sit in the moment and reflect on whether or not anything about that meme is similar to you instead of moving so quickly to the ways that you are different from it.
0: This work of being self-reflexive and seeing how you connect, Mm -hmm. can that happen online Mm -hmm. or does it need to, by definition, happen offline?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I am almost sure that I am like professionally obligated to say that it can happen (laughs) (laughs) But whether or not I think, okay, so I think in the internet we have, it is difficult for it to happen online, but the internet we have is not the only internet that can be, right? There was a way for us to do digitally mediated or the internet connections that is not the the form of like platform capture that we have right now. So there's a way for us to have, you know, these dense forms of internet-based connections that are not monetized, for example, right? Or that are not captured in an app or on a social media platform where I think those types of authentic spaces could be created in the internet that we have that monetizes attention, that, Actually shrinks the size of your world. So one of the perverse things that platforms have done to the Internet is that they've taken connections that were supposed to make your world bigger, but through marketing and targeted advertising actually makes your actual world smaller. So you have 50,000 friends, you know, quote unquote friends, but based on those 50,000 friends, the platform now delivers to you a smaller and smaller sliver of the culture because it will only give you the things you like, right? (laughs) Right? So that's the perverse relationship. So in that space, it's really hard to become self-reflexive because you never spark against anyone else, right? You never have that moment of friction that is necessary for that space to open up. So it is possible on a version of the internet. It's really tough with the internet that we have.
0: Right. Now, when you're talking about the fact that the way these platforms are monetized and the fact that the algorithm essentially shows you more of what you want to see, even though, let's say, the people you're connected to is like a fair Mm -hmm. cross-section. Exactly. Right. Right. How does this start to shift power and resources mm-hmm. and attention capital in certain ways along race or gender or a- any parameter? Like, how does it start to pull all of that?
1: Hmm. When what we pay attention to becomes as segregated as where we live, <laughs> the powers accrue the same way online as they do offline, which is that we narrow the pool of voices that are considered legitimate We start to attach a value to them, whether that's attention or money. What's starting to happen online is that those two are starting to converge. It's both attention and money. That's what I think influencer culture is. uh, The consumer power of online purchasing does to us by turning so many of our interactions into exchanges. So we attach a value to a smaller pool of, quote unquote, legitimate or desirable voices, the targeted groups, the high quality groups of users. You know, we've got affinity groups. We have all this wonderful language for it that really boils down to we are recreating the offline status hierarchy of race online. And once that codifies, right, then all of the new forms of, quote unquote, disruptive technologies Really have to replicate that to disrupt. And so the disruption cycle just sort of accelerates the accrual of resources to a smaller group of people, whether, again, that's attention or their value to marketers or um, those who invest and sell goods online.
0: The way you're describing it, it sounds like it does it even more efficiently yes. than it might happen. Yes, in, it in, does. Life.
1: Uh Ruha yeah. Benjamin um, is a wonderful social scientist, and she has this wonderful book about race and technology where she makes the point about that what ra- that what technology promised was this disruption of the cycle of racism because it would open up the space for minority groups to basically flatten the power differential of size. Right. So one of the problems that a minority group has is that there fewer of us right you know numbers matter and what the internet was doing was supposed to do is connect those smaller groups to other smaller groups and sort of level right the asymmetry of numbers online instead because the way platform capture works and advertising models have driven the shape of the internet it speeds up the process of hardening the lines of race online. Yeah, it just speeds up the cycle because it becomes so much easier to co-opt those minority voices, sort of whitewash them very quickly, attach them to the more desirable accounts or brands or ideas and make them valuable. And technology has just just sped all of that up.
0: This is where I think it gets really interesting. And you're talking about we're talking about resources and attention capital. I don't know that there's a place where you can see it more clearly than in the beauty space. Oh yes. And you can't talk about beauty without talking about Instagram. It's basically where mm-hmm. beauty brands and lifestyle brands are born. Mm-hmm. It's where they thrive. And Instagram is setting a lot of the norms for what, counts is beauty. How, what are some just obvious and not so obvious ways that Instagram has defined our current standard of beauty or maybe just amplified what was always there? Mm -hmm.
1: There was this, you know, very hopeful moment when the internet looked like a way to surface alternative versions of beauty and value and worth. Right. It was a place where you could find other people that not only maybe valued what you value, but more importantly, what we were all looking for was a place where we were valued. And that's really important for people who live in a majority culture where they are the minority, because nothing you value is ever going to be thought of as inherently valuable unless it's stripped from you. And that is there's nothing more. You know, a better case of that than the case of beauty, which is minority or subcultures can come up with their own versions of what's beautiful. But at some point, you have to leave your subculture, if only to go to school, to go to work, right? To encounter the external world, where beauty is a very powerful form of capital, particularly for women who have to use, because of how patriarchy is set up, they have to use beauty to a certain extent to gain access to spaces, right? Where they can compete and develop themselves. And so the minute that we have to like trade on beauty, again, it becomes valuable. And that's what Instagram figured out, that we love to look at beautiful things and we love to promote our own ideas of beauty, but we also like for people to pay attention to us. And when those things are in tension with each other, you will start to mimic each other or mimic the dominant form of the belief system, in this case, what is beautiful, so that you can get more attention, right? It is, again, the attention economy of what will attract the eyes. And if there is a pre-existing idea of what constitutes beautiful, or you know, acceptable bodies, then that becomes monetized on the platform. And the beauty industry has taken to Instagram for obvious reasons, it gives them that visual story that again tends to short circuit our path to empathy, right? <laughs> that's why we like to think of our preferences for what we find beautiful as apolitical. Like, oh no, that's not politics. I just like what I like. You know, I'm just hardwired to like blondes. Right.
0: It's <laughs> a lie. <laughs> right. such a
1: lie. Everything that we have a quote unquote preference for. We are pulling from these big cultural ideas. But on a on a platform like Instagram, that gets lost. There's no context on Instagram. Right. There's just the snapshot and the caption and how many people like you. There's no context for where the idea of blonde comes from or blue eyes or thinness or height or long legs, or big boobs. All of those things get sort of excised from the culture that produces them and suddenly it just becomes preference and customer taste, right? What your followers want to see. And then it also has created a space of freedom for minority beauty influencers to try to create their own thing. But that also allows like the majority culture to to, like take the parts that they like from that minority culture and then turn them into something valuable without paying the people who produced it. And so you see a really tiered system in that influencer culture, beauty influencers on Instagram where some of the most popular influencers might be from minority groups, but some of the people earning the most money are not. It's the Kardashianization of yeah. beauty. Like, right? Everybody likes some of these things that come from minority cultures the moment they become divorced from the minority people. And Instagram, like we were talking about, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, just sort of speeds up that process and adds a whole other layer of profitability to it.
0: And in case anybody's confused, I came across a stat that said filtered photos are twenty one percent more mm-hmm. likely to be viewed than unfiltered, mm-hmm. and forty five percent more likely to receive comments. And you learn that super fast. Oh yeah, when you get on the platform. Oh yeah, and then there's some the more obvious stuff too. Um, you know, like you described, like the basic whitewashing of influencers, mm-hmm. or even just simple things like uh, filters. Yes. That create a new standard beauty, that, and all of them lighten your skin tone. That
1: is correct. It's Lightning Creams. It's the digital version of Lightning Creams, which is one of the number one best global beauty sellers. There's not a culture in the entire world. When you talk about a dominant idea about race, by the way, one of the most dominant ideas about race around the world, places where they've never even seen an actual blonde person, right, (laughs) is the idea, however, of a global beauty ideal, That is one of the most successful ideas and it is an anti-Black idea. One of the ways that we measure that is that every society, every society you can buy skin lightening cream everywhere. L'Oreal is one of the biggest sellers of skin lightening creams all around the world. They package it for different local contexts. So whether you want to be fairer skinned in East Asia or you want to be lighter in South Asia or you want to be whiter in South Africa, right? it is the same idea all over the world. Instagram and filters and face tuning have just taken that idea and digitized it. So, yes, every filter actually not only, quote unquote, softens your complexion, but it also lightens it because the idea is that to be lighter is to be more beautiful and therefore attract more attention.
0: It literally is in the air that we breathe. I didn't even really see it that much until I started reading your book last year and I realized how much colorism there is Mm -hmm. in Middle Eastern culture. Mm -hmm. My parents are Iranian and it's very But, you know, you just you don't even realize that you're absorbing mm-hmm. that narrative until. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I read your book and then I couldn't unsee it.
1: Oh, well, that's amazing. in a in am in a sorry kind of way. But, yeah, <laughs> so it's amazing. Thank you.
0: Well, your book is incredible. We're going to we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> so your book has so many. It's a it's a collection of essays. Every one of them is profound and most of them focus, all of them focus on the structural violence that is committed against black women. Mm -hmm. And you can't read this book and not realize how that structural violence isn't making all of us sick in some way.
1: Yes. That is, yes. That for me is the takeaway that it, yes, that it implicates us all and makes us all worse off.
0: Absolutely. And Something that was interesting to me, it was clear to me when I read your book, a lot of these ideas, and this happens in our work too, all the time, come back to capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's inescapable. And you have a passage in the book, and we've already talked about this a bit, but I I just want to read this passage. And if you want to expand on it, that'd be great. But Mm -hmm. it's a long passage, so I'm going to read it. You say, our so-called counter narratives about beauty and what they demand of us cannot be divorced from the fact that beauty is contingent upon capitalism. Mm-hmm. Even our resistance becomes a means to commodify. And what is commodified is always, always stratified. Yes. There is simply no other way to coerce. Beauty must exclude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I think, I don't even know if you need to explain that. I feel like uh, any woman hearing that is going to feel Mm -hmm. it. And I understand that this is from your perspective as a black woman, where it's Mm -hmm. extremely personal as well. Did you, it would be great if you could talk a little bit about what the context around this was, Mm -hmm. what you really meant by this. Yeah, it is,
1: uh, you know, I was responding to several things. One was, you know, as a A sort of publicly visible academic and sociologist. I often get these calls from brands. Who, um, especially over the last like two or three years, where there's a lot of um, cultural capital attached to the brand that you know, quote unquote, gets it right. It being Mm -hmm. diversity, inclusion, uh, what have you. And so, oftentimes, a brand will reach out to me saying, "Hey, we just want to strategize on this thing we're launching. You know, we want it to be inclusive." And they always list as the example the ideal is the Dove Beauty campaign, right? They want to do what Dove did with beauty, right? Which makes it sound like Dove got it right, right?
0: Oh, they didn't. <laughs> but no, exactly. They absolutely
1: did not. And they're always so surprised when they get me on the call. And I go, well, hey, I'll talk to you. I already know they're probably not going to like what hat what they what, the, uh, what I say. But I'll talk because I'll say to you, well, first of all, you're starting with an ideal that I think is actually fundamentally flawed. Like, if you want to do the Dove Beauty campaign, that's not something I would encourage because the Dove Beauty campaign promotes this idea of everyone can be beautiful in a context where we know that is empirically untrue. (laughs) The selling of the idea that we can individually overcome these big structural forces that absolutely do shape our lives may make us feel good in a moment, but kind of like the way visual images shortcut our empathy, right? It really obscures the reality of people's lives, particularly women's lives, where again, our value is still contingent upon whether or not we are viewed as physically acceptable, As long as our value as human beings is conditioned on whether or not we are desirable to someone, then beauty will always be political. And when you make money on beauty, then you're dealing in the politics of that exclusion. And we have to deal with the fact that there are actual barriers to being included in that narrative that no amount of working out, eating well, <laughs> shaping up, narrowing, lightening, or whatever, is ever going to overcome. And until we accept that, till we get to a point that there are limits to what an individual can do, we are trapped in the very system that is abusing us for economic gain. And so what I have argued is that there is a setting yourself free when you acknowledge that I can like myself in all of my imperfections, but that the political problem is not what I have done to myself. The political problem is what has been done to me. Why do I have to consume these ideas about myself to participate in the world? Why do I have to dress this way? Why do I have to perform a certain type of acceptability? One of the things that we ask of women, particularly when they are deemed not attractive, which by definition, non-white women by definition can't ever really become as a group. There can be exceptions, but as a group of people, it cannot happen. So one of the things that happens when we stop accepting that that is the case is we can say, oh, I can stop twisting myself into a, into a pretzel, right? I can reject that. I can say I feel good about myself. <laughs> That's just fine. But I can reject the idea that there's something I need to buy to make myself better, that's the economic piece
0: it's not easy no it it's is not a lot of of, of decoding and unbundling yes. the world outside of yourself and it's different than what that dove campaign was doing which was saying oh if you're just confident you're beautiful which is yes. back on the woman yes like it's it it's a moral failing on your part that's right you can't be confident in this world
1: my god and what you're They drop us into a whole world where, from the moment you're born, you are shaped into a performance of desiring beauty and then blame us when we try to do it. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, how perverse is that? If a person were doing that to us, we would say the person was abusive. We would say that person is, you know, emotionally manipulative and abusive. But when a brand does it, it whitewashes the abusive part of it. Right. And I use whitewash quite deliberately there. Yes, because it takes away. Yeah. The violence of what that does to a person to drop you into a system and then say, how dare you have conformed to it?
0: Yes. And that was, I think, a a tough, a tough uh um pill for people to swallow when the reality of that Dove campaign, like years later on, Mm -hmm. started to surface because that's what all lifestyle branding became about. That's right. It was all about like, you can change yourself Mm -hmm. and you talk about this, I don't think you, this quote I have here, I don't think it's from your book, but you had said in an interview somewhere that the lie we tell in our Western ideal of meritocracy is that there's something that those people can do to Mm -hmm. themselves to fit in better. But the ultimate truth is that there's nothing that you can do. Mm -hmm. And this ties really well to another essay in your book that I think is the most popular essay. It seems like most people found themselves in your essay called Dying to be Competent. And that was an example of you did do all of the right things mm-hmm. and you still, that's when you really saw mm-hmm. the lie. Even like, like I said, you can try to unbundle yourself from it, but it's, you, you catch yourself in it all the time. I would love it if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely was coming from the sociological side of me and then the personal side of me. And it's the point where the two meet Which is sociologically, we're trained to look at these big systems, right? And figure out how they work and who succeeds in them and who fails in them. As a person, however, who lives in a body that the system was not designed for, I had experienced that sociology very differently than the way we sometimes talk about it, which is from a distance, right? And with a certain amount of expertise, is supposed to be separated from your personal experiences, et cetera. Well, as a black woman who is also a sociologist, there really isn't any such thing. And instead of saying that was a problem, I wanted to say, no, but look how much sharper our understanding of the world is when we don't have that false divide. When I could speak about the fact that there was a system designed to deliver medical care to me, health care. I was pregnant and I was going through the healthcare system in a pregnant female body, which is already a very vulnerable position, by the way. Any woman who has ever been pregnant can tell you about the ways that you're gaslit, infantilized, the way that people speak over you. They want to talk to your spouse or your partner instead of you. The way medical providers don't listen to you about what's happening to your body, the way they try to discipline you so you are pregnant the right way, you know, gain weight. Gain too much weight. Don't think of yourself as disabled, even though you're in crippling pain. You know, <laughs> work through it, get over it, snap back. Oh my God, I hate this language where <laughs> immediately upon having the baby, you're supposed to snap back, meaning to your original body, forgetting the fact that this major transformation has happened to you physically. The healthcare system does that to every woman, but by design, it is structured to do that to some women more so than others. And I was one of those women that there was an assumption of uh, competence that was afforded white middle-class and upper-class women in that healthcare system that was not afforded to me, despite the fact that I was very much middle-class, right? I have all of those external markers of competency. I was highly educated, I had degrees, I was married, I had the quote-unquote good health insurance from a quote-unquote good employer, but in the moment of interacting with the healthcare system, at every single step of the process, I was only granted access once I would concede that I had made a mistake, that I was incompetent, that I had misread my signs of labor, that I should not have been here, that I had done something wrong. And that's a broader critique on the very idea of meritocracy in our society. This idea that meritocracy are systems that are supposed to promote meritocracy. In my case, I used healthcare, but it's just as true of education, of work, of technology, of democracy, the criminal justice system, that there is an assumed subject that that system works for. Um, at the most basic level, it's the person who can read English because all the forms are in English. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Right? It's the person who can afford a representative right? Whether that's a lawyer in a courtroom or an agent of some sort, right? That signals to people that you need to be you know, treated in a certain way. But there is an assumed subject in all of these systems. And by design, system after system after system, it becomes clear that none of them are designed for me. I am always the exception and that there's no amount of earning external validation and credentials and symbols that are going to overcome the fact that this is not structured for me. And to circle back to where our conversation started, that, yeah, that's about me, but it's also about how what happens to me impacts what happens to other people. When the system is designed to make me vulnerable, just to stay efficient, it's going to make a whole bunch of other people vulnerable too, right? So, yes, a thing that's designed to, to exclude me by definition never stops at just me. <laughs> it will always, always to become more and more efficient. So when we talk about an organization becoming lean or flexible or nimble or flat, what we're talking about is how can it more quickly and efficiently figure out who's competent and who's incompetent? How can it sort people more efficiently? And the minute we do that, it's not just about Black women, y'all. It never stops there. It's also going to pick up disabled people who may also be Black women, but may not be. It's going to pick up people who are not English speakers. It doesn't stop there. It's going to pick up poor people. It won't stop there. It's going to pick up working class people who are maybe just a little less working class than others. And then it's going to tap into middle class people, which incidentally is where I think we are right now. It is middle-class people feeling that they are not as different as they thought.
0: And really who is middle-class right now? I mean, do any of us have savings that will last us longer than a couple of months? It's, it's a complete fiction. Yes.
1: If the pandemic has not shown us anything else, I hope it has shown us that, that very, very few of us have enough resources where we are not the incompetent subject really, really fast.
0: Yeah, I think it, very few people realize that that entire phrase was completely made up. I think it's part of a political campaign. I don't know how many generations ago. Oh, just comes out it right of other. 40s. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm talking to a sociologist, so you obviously <laughs> know the answer. Okay. So <laughs> I, I want to mention that what you touched on this briefly. What was really powerful about this book and a lot of your writing is the fact that. Uh, You know, we talked to a lot of sociologists on this show and Mm -hmm. sociology is sometimes it just feels very divorced from Mm. from what it's actually studying. I've spoken with sociologists that, you know, are experts in digital worlds, just Mm -hmm. like you, but they don't even engage in digital media. Um, Weird. I know I'm not going to I still want to interview those people, so I'm not going to critique it. No, it's totally fine. (laughs) As a
1: a sociologist, I think that about my profession all the time. That's why it's actually really delightful for me to hear someone from outside the profession comment upon that, Um, because I actually and I'm in a place professionally where I'm thinking about that a lot, by the way. So, yeah, no, I know it totally happens.
0: It feels like you're opening the door for other people in your position to start writing like this, because if sociology, I don't know what the ultimate goal is, if it's not to actually put a mirror up Mm -hmm. to our faces so that we, and and in effect change, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, because I don't know that we can trust our social systems or political systems or financial systems to make that change for us Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I do feel like, Sociologists need other tools. And that's what makes your writing so, I think, effective for a lot of people. That's why people see themselves in your book. Across the board, people see themselves in your book. Thank you. So you have it seems a real opinion on the corporate side of all the mm-hmm. things that we're discussing here. I I don't think it's fair to ask you like, okay, so what's the answer? I, I, that's, yeah. I don't know if that's fair. Well, thanks. But- I
1: appreciate it. Cause we don't have, <laughs> we don't do answers. Like you know, because nobody's ever going to like my answer. My answer is like more of what we're doing now and everybody's over it. Right. Like, but yes, it's, it's more protest. It's more pushing back. It's more naming mm-hmm. and shaming and, organizing and being super uncomfortable far longer than we want to be uncomfortable. But yeah, but nobody likes that, those answers, which is
0: fair. Yeah. Well, if you have the answers, I would like to hear them. You know, my, my question was going to be, Beyond these attempts, like forget diversity inclusion, that should be table stakes. Mm -hmm. Forget like, you know, posting whatever and making sure your messaging is right. What would it take to kind of solve a problem? Like, okay, here's an example. Mm -hmm. There was a, I think it was a New York Times article about how luxury brands are boarding up their storefronts, you know, speaking Mm -hmm. of imagery, then they go and hire muralists to paint, you know, um, BLM murals. And when they're really... Taking their capitalist intentions of protecting their their assets and wrapping it in a message, which mm-hmm. I mean, it, you don't have to dig very far to see that. What kind of change would it take for stuff like that to stop happening? That is a big question. But if, if you can answer, we it, haven't have to hear learned
1: it. anything from the. I mean, just phenomenal success—not necessarily good success, but the phenomenal success of monetizing our attention in the attention economy, in the digital connected society, what I think we should have learned is that our attention is so valuable in a consumer society, maybe even more valuable than the things we actually buy, which seems perverse to us, which is why I think we haven't really taken to the idea that we will do these boycotts, right? Don't shop at, you know, Amazon Blackout Day and literally Amazon doesn't care right? Amazon was designed to be distributed enough that no disruption in any part of its market will affect the overall health of the company. That's the way globalization works. It was the whole point. But what does start to impact a company like, oh, I don't know, Facebook, who apparently this week is right, shaking in their boots over the last couple of weeks at the idea that advertisers are starting to pull out of, uh, or, you know, quote unquote boycotting, but they're not boycotting just uh, in money. What they're really saying is we will turn our attention away and other people saying they will follow suit. I think our attention and what we um, will pay attention to is maybe more valuable than where we even spend our money. Because the way global capital works, the way we spend our money just doesn't disrupt the way it did 30, 40 years ago. And so for that sort of crass, performative capitalism where they quickly co-opt the images of revolution while calling in private police forces to protect their $10 stuff um, in a store, probably the best thing we can do is uh, to deny them our attention. Uh, believe it or not, which would mean not taking the pictures of, oh, look at, you know, H&M got it right. Or, oh, look at this brand with this really cool ad about Black Lives Matter. Frankly, it shouldn't matter what Nike says about whether or not Black Lives Matter. Nike should be held account to taxation and democratic participation in keeping our society functioning. They should maybe not be looked. We probably shouldn't look to them for a consumer brand message. Now, we should hold them accountable for, being, for uh, being, not being anti-Black, but probably trying to seek out a message from them that is pro-Black Lives Matter really isn't the right form of politics for our moment because it's too easy to perform it. Right. It's just far too easy to perform it and to obscure the way the business actually works. Um, And so I actually think so many of the young activists, by the way, totally get this.
0: I think I was going to say that. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: I think they get it. They're the ones who have actually pushed my thinking on this and have shown that this works and community after community who I think needs to get. This is frankly those of us who are maybe no longer considered young. Okay. Um, We might need to learn it. Uh, I think, you know, sort of like middle America, safely ensconced in sort of our own little social worlds. We need to learn that message. But I'm telling you, young people have got it. They're not anti-consumption, but they do not look to consumption as their politics in the same kind of way that some of us were raised and socialized to do it. Um, so I think the right answer is to, you know, to deny these things our attention, to pay attention to the things you care about <laughs> is the way I've, I've heard that said. And it sounds really simple until you realize if you ever track like your media diet or something and you realize you really have spent way more time uh, focusing on the things that you don't want to see reproduced and not nearly enough time promoting the things that you do want to see reproduced. And in an attention economy where so much lives and dies and what we pay attention to, we should probably pay attention to what we want.
0: Yeah. It seems like our generation, for some reason, because we were, we were born into this, we were the mm-hmm. first generation. We just don't understand the value of our attention and yeah. we don't have a good grasp of, of, where we spend it, but mm-hmm. I do feel like our children or the next generation, you know, this young generation coming up really does understand oh, man.
1: that. Do they ever. And with a quickness, I mean, which is, you know, this is the natural course of things they They are supposed to understand it better, but I marvel at the speed with which they can just sort through corporate lingo and language and branding and brand speak and I, and signaling, I mean, they can just slice through it. The part where I think we can help is that we can maybe help give them some language around some of that, what we know about consumption and about politics. I do think we have maybe more experience with that, having seen the shift happen, but they absolutely have a speed with which they can analyze those things that we cannot top.
0: And going back to Nike. So tell me if I was hearing this right. You feel like it is their job because this is where it gets thorny for some people. Mm-hmm. It is their job to be very political mm-hmm. with how they run their business and where their money goes and yeah. where they invest. Yes. Got it. My last question for you. I, I I can't get away from the book. And it was something that I was thinking about the whole time that I was preparing for this interview. Mm-hmm. You have a collection of beautiful essays in there. I would, what I kept wondering was, what are the essays that weren't included? (laughs) What an amazing question. I got to tell you, I don't
1: think anybody's asked me that. (laughs) I absolutely love that question. I I was just, uh, wow. So I'm in a creative moment where I'm thinking about the next project. And so because of that, revisited the development of the last book. And so I was thinking about that a lot. Um, I think we started with I, don't know, I think I started, I know I started with over a hundred essays. There were some previously done. There were some that were kind of seeds of ideas, you know, but I started with a lot. And so it was more a process of um, integrating some ideas and, and narrowing than it was broadening the scope. It really was for me about focus. Um, and when you do this type of collection, part of it was that the structure of the essays and how they spoke to each other was as much the message of the book as any one individual essay was that whether, you know, a reader realized it or not, I hope they came away at the end of having read them in their totality together as a conversation across the essays. And that big idea was, hey, look what happens when we take Black women's lives seriously. Look what happens. Look what you understand about yourself now. Look what, Look at how differently you, you're looking at the things you love Look how how much better you can explain what you believe in. Like, look at what happens when Black women's humanity is really serious. It doesn't exclude. It actually includes in a way. It's using a particular language, Black and woman, to include. We think of being particular about our language as a tool of exclusion. And I wanted to show that, no, it's an actual, a calling in not an exclusionary process. And so one of the things I did when I was going through the essays was, does this serve like this bigger sort of feeling that I hope people walk away with? And I'm always thinking when I'm writing, did I write this for me or did I write this for the world? (laughs) Um, Because there's a difference. There's some things that are about me writing to myself and my own understanding, but that doesn't necessarily, but won't necessarily push the understanding of a reader. Or push a conversation that I think is important. So, for example, there were essays where I, you know, I was endlessly fascinated with something, and I just had to realize other people maybe are not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Such as, <laughs> oh, let's see, I have a whole oh, I have a whole thing about the like where did all of the mixed race interracial c- couples come from and branding over the last couple of years and I had this theory that we could track it to the rise of interracial couples in network television. And I really, I ended up, you know, tagging it to Shonda Rhimes. I was like, you know, once you gave a showrunner the freedom to cast in a colorblind way, but the showrunner was a black woman, you got these pairings of romantic couples that had never been seen on network television before. And they worked. And so brands start to pick them up as a way to signal diversity without having a diversity message, you know. So yeah. a Swiffer now could be diverse if you put a mixed race couple in the ad. <laughs> uh, Cheerios was another good example. So I, have, you know, I have what I call these, you know. Diversions that I go down, but I thought, does it move forward a conversation, or is it just something that I think is interesting? And so that's one of the ways that I decided, and uh, that's an example of one of the ones that didn't quite make the cut. But is no, but is you know is not any less fascinating to me for it.
0: <laughs> and I was very pleased to learn through one of your blog posts that you and I have something in common. We both have read a lot of Harlequin novels for some so- reason
1: many. Oh my goodness. We should have said that in the introduction, we should have started there. Okay. So did you grow up with them or did you come to them later? No,
0: I discovered them when I was an undergraduate at Uh Berkeley and I didn't go home one summer because I, I don't know, I was depressed and not talking to my parents. And I was like, okay, I have to fill my summer with something. And I, There was a giant stack at the Salvation Army. That's exactly where I would get
1: them. Because for a (laughs) dollar, they'll give you like a whole stack of them for
0: like $2. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Because they're so cheap. And there's so much, and you don't have to read too many to see the same patterns Mm -hmm. emerge. And like, it was, it's, it's like eating junk food. You you feel icky after reading them, but I need to know, like, where where are you zeroing in on this content? Why does it resonate with you? Oh,
1: what a wonderful question. Um, I now attribute it to, in part, I think I've just always been curious about like how other people live, right? And it was, and nothing in a Harlequin book. Resonates with my actual life, right? There are no <laughs> dudes, the lords, nobody's coming on a horse to save anybody where I'm from, right? So it was quite literally like, like reading, I don't know, the cultural diary of people that I would never engage with in real life. It was actually a very long time before I realized all white people, uh, did not come from a Duke or Lord (laughs) and (laughs) did not grow up on a horse farm in Wyoming with an attractive, um, head of the family, uh, who left a whole bunch of money, uh, with, uh, with you know, in in the will, there was uh, a requirement that you had to marry someone who would take care of the cows. Like I didn't know that that didn't <laughs> actually happen in real life. <laughs> I was fascinated by the peak into and I think what what I can now say it was is I was like fascinated with privilege. Right. I'm fascinated. I was fascinated with inheritance because those are so Mm -hmm. they just didn't operate that way in my world. And I actually, you know, I learned a whole language of class from them because so many of them borrow from like the, you know, the the British system of class, which is not how it works in America. So you get these like, you know, what titles were and how property worked and that women were always property. -hmm. And I think it was a peek into trying to think about what gender meant and how gender worked. Talk Mm -hmm. about a beauty economy, right? The entire Harlequin world. Is built. There's not an ugly woman in Harlequin. There isn't a single one who doesn't have flaxen hair that blows in the wind and, you know, eats all she wants and never gains weight and she's always desirable. And so that fiction and ideology was just endlessly fascinating. And then there was also, you know, just a little taboo breaking. I knew I wasn't supposed to be reading them. (laughs) And that part's always a little fun.
0: I think anybody would have that experience now too, because there's something weird about. It was an, they were always impossible stories. Yes, it was always I saw the same thing, the same trope where a jerk falls mm-hmm. in love with a beautiful woman,
1: mm-hmm. and he's a
0: total. I was going to say dick to her. He's, he's uh, not nice to her at all. Yeah. And she has to somehow get him to fall in love with her, but she can never voice how she feels. Mm-hmm. It always comes to this climax where she can never say how she feels. He has to just come to understand it through her withholding or whatever weird yes. thing that she does. Um, Which is also thematically, I don't watch too many Hallmark films, but I know you also have an interest in Hallmark films. I've watched them all
1: for you. You don't need to watch them. (laughs) It's totally fine. Some people find it very weird that what a a scholar of like race and racism and inequality (laughs) and economic class (laughs) would watch Hallmark movies. So one of the things, though, that I like about Hallmark movies is that there's no guessing Right. So, so much of my professional life in the real world, especially now, there's so much predicting we need to do. And it's all happening so fast. And so the Hallmark universe is so predictable. There's never going to be, you know, a villain whose motivations I don't understand. Every story is going to end nicely. It's going to be wrapped up. But I also think of it as like a weird West Anderson universe. (laughs) Right. And that is just the it is the exact inverse of the real world. Right. So it has all of the elements of our everyday life, but flipped upside down. Right. Yes. All of the world in Hallmark is white, but in that world, it's good. Right? The residential segregation seemed to have happened, but everybody likes it that way. (laughs) Yes, there are poor people in the Hallmark universe, by the way, which I find so fascinating, but like they're never hungry or cold or homeless. They're just kind of temporarily out of money. Which is such an American fantasy, right? We all think we're just temporarily yeah. broke.
0: Oh yes, yeah. I know that myth, right? Yes.
1: And in uh, the Hallmark universe, it actually happens, uh, <laughs> and, and, right? And so it takes all of these like really American ideas and flips them upside down um, in a like you know falling through the looking glass kind of way. Um, that, as a sociologist, where my whole job is figuring out how the social structure works. It sort of defamiliarizes it in a really interesting way, like Hallmark did gender and class, flips them upside down so that I can examine them, which is really helpful because, again, you don't really invite I don't navigate those spaces of privilege and wealth. And as a sociologist, it's actually really hard for us to gain access to those places if you're not born to them. Right. You're not just going to walk into a really elite social group and start studying it. Power doesn't like to be studied. So one of the ways that we can do that is through the popular culture that's created about power and privilege. And believe it or not, I think Hallmark is an example of that. They wouldn't say so. They think they're like working class culture. And I'm like, no, you're all about this is all a love story to capitalism. It's all a big love letter to money.
0: (laughs) That's all it
1: is.
0: (laughs) And is it true that you're going to. Cover this for a new podcast? I
1: kid you not. I'm actually talking about this. I mean, I've got an actual team of people. We are getting together to talk about the perverse mundaneness of the Hallmark Universe and what it says about our real world.
0: Mm, There must be so much to dig in through there. Um, I think so. I mean,
1: I hope it's not like that essay that I tossed to the side where I thought it was only interesting to me. I think if we do this right, (laughs) that it is interesting to people who don't read Hallmark novels, right? I think this is interesting on so many different levels once you get over the sort of ick factor about it being a Hallmark movie.
0: Right well thank you so much this was such a rich conversation
1: it sure was I cannot thank you enough for being a wonderful interlocutor and having me on this was so much fun for me
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unseen Unknown. Our family of listeners is growing fast, and we appreciate each and every one of you that's coming along for the ride, asking questions of the world, and having big conversations with us. Come join us online, too. You can find me at Triple Jazz on Twitter and Instagram. That's T R I P L E J A S. And sign up for our newsletter at conceptbureau.com forward slash insights. We'll talk to you soon.